Well, good morning. It is so great to see you here today. My name is Mike, and I serve with our Sunday morning adult communities. And I'm Michael, and I serve on our creative team. Mike, I know you've been here a number of years. How many years have you been a part of Wheaton Bible Church? We've been a part of Wheaton Bible coming up on 23 years now. It was one of the first churches we visited when we came to Wheaton, and we've called it our church home ever since. Well, that's pretty awesome. And despite being here 23 years, um, there's something that you haven't been a part of yet at this church. Today, we are going to be confirming our next senior pastor of Wheaton Bible Church. The elders have nominated Pastor Hannibal Rodriguez, and we are going to be confirming as members uh, Hannibal as the next senior pastor. So at 2.30 today is the vote. If you haven't yet registered, join us on campus at 2.30. You can go online at wheatonbible.org slash senior pastor to get registered. Now, across those 23 years, I'm sure you've been a part of serving in a lot of different areas. What are some of the ways that you've been serving? Well, uh, most recently, two weeks ago, I worked and served with our small group team and served in CareFest. Prior to that, um, I worked on our and served on our elder nominating committee, and I've also served three times on GO teams going to Greece. Now, going to Greece is a long way to serve, so I always like serving here close at home and here on campus. Uh, as our campuses reopen more and more, our Sunday teams need some help to be able to minister to our kids and students, amplify our worship gatherings, and welcome each other back to campus. Whether you've been on campus for a while or will be returning soon, would you consider joining a team to serve with? Take a listen to how Kaylee jumped in with our kids team. Hi, my name is Kaylee Walsh and I'm a volunteer here with our kids ministry, K through second grade. I remember coming to the old Wheaton Bible when it was in downtown Wheaton as a little kid with like me and my siblings. I just remember like how much I looked up to my teachers when I was younger and how I loved coming to church and having like the high school teachers or people that are like closer to my age. So that's how I kind of started because I remember being younger looking up to them and how much I love going to church and hanging out because I felt like so cool with all the older kids hanging out at church on Sunday. This made it so much more fun for me than it already was. I love coming to church even more volunteering now on Sundays. I look forward to seeing the same kids all the time and seeing new people and catching up with them. They're always telling me about their weeks or what they have going on. It's so much fun. Kids bring such a good energy. I teach Bible stories that I've been hearing about the past 23 years of my life, and I'm still learning. Even though I'm teaching the kids, I'm still learning more things every Sunday when I come here. So I think it's great for people to dive in and go further into their faith by coming to church and volunteering to share with the kids and then for themselves as well. I've learned so much from the kids. They're so honest and creative and quick learners. We come and do our story and then 30 minutes later, they're so excited to share with their parents or show them their craft or show their siblings their craft they've been working on. But it just amazes me how young they are and how quickly they can learn and pick up everything. It truly does amaze me. <laughs> because we weren't able to go to church, we started streaming the services at home on Sundays. And at the end of the service, there was someone on there saying how, oh, we need people to volunteer. And that's when I was like, this is what I'm doing. It's super easy to get involved. I just signed up online and the whole process was super easy. I'm not a teacher. I babysit that growing up, but they work with you. The kids are so excited to be with you and meet you that it's a very easy process and it's so much fun to be around. So I wouldn't doubt anything. I would just come into it if you're ready to give your time. There's people here that want you and are excited to be around with you the, the entire time. <laughs> 
Serving on a team is a great chance to reconnect with your church family, and however you're gifted, there's a spot for you. There are three teams in particular that are looking for some help as more and more families return to campus. Kids Life, our production team, and our front door ministry. You can learn more about all of these teams and get connected with a leader at wheatonbible.org volunteer. I'm excited to see you join the team. Well, that's all for today. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us, and we hope you have an amazing week. Morning, Wheaton Bible Church. Welcome here in the room and online. Let's stand together and sing to Jesus, the King of glory. He is worthy of our praise. Lift up your song. There is a king sitting on a higher throne. He rules the world, all of history he owns. His name is Jesus. We stand as one as the people of the cross. We're marching on for the victory is won. Our King is Jesus, our King is Jesus. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Though kingdoms fall, He is reigning still. He is Jesus Christ, the King of Grows, to see the glory of the children of the Lord, our hope is Jesus. Yes, you are what you begin, we are sure you will complete, and by your spirit, everything will be set free in the name of Jesus.
goodness, God, that we can be so confident in you, that you are working things for the good of those who love you, Lord, that you are making a way. When it seems impossible, God, you are making a way. You are so good, Lord, so good to me. church. You may be seated. He is a good God. He is a good God. In the darkest night, he is a good God. He is faithful. And this morning, I want to share a recent update with you that really highlights that goodness, that really shows that faithfulness of our Lord. Um, this is a story from our missions team, and it just happened a couple weeks ago. About, oh, six years ago, seven years ago, 2014, our church partnered with Gilgal Gospel Mission, which is um, a ministry in India, in southern India, Chennai. And this mission is, they focus on planting churches. They focus on training students to be church planters. And then there's a children's home on the mission that houses vulnerable children. And two years ago, in 2019, Adam and I got to go and we got to see this mission up close. It was amazing. We got to worship with um, the seminary students and the churches. We got to meet the kids and play with them. Um, they changed our lives. Changed our lives. Yeah. We got to really see what God is doing in India. And there were some incredible stories. Incredible stories of miracles and healing. It was amazing just to see to see what God is doing up close. And so, some of you may have heard, but over the past 60 days, there have been over 12 million new COVID cases in India. And the government and the healthcare systems have not been able to keep up with this surge. Um, it's been a really trying time. And when we heard about that, I mean, our hearts were broken. Our friends are there. And yeah, it's really difficult to see them go through this. But what's amazing is Gilgal Gospel Mission has planted 22 churches in southern India. And these churches have really become a hub for their communities. And so what they've done is they've reached out and come alongside of the vulnerable families that have been hit hardest in this time, in these last two months. And we got to, as a church, two weeks ago on May 5th, we got to send them an emergency grant of $5,000 to help them get critical supplies for these families so we just want to say thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you for giving. Because we're able to respond in emergencies. We're able to help our brothers and sisters out in times like this. And we were so blessed when we heard that we were able to do that because, um, you know, we know God is going to heal. Uh, we know God is doing amazing things in India. 
And so we're going to sing a song for you. Adam, you wrote this song, I, and it was inspired by our trip. Yeah, that, that trip brought out so many beautiful things and uh, learned so much and saw the kingdom of God at work in ways that we never had before. But the, the biggest thing that stuck out to us was we would travel around Chennai to all these different church plants in these different towns, and we would meet people. And story after story, time after time, there was this common thread. Stories of God's faithfulness, his provision, but more specifically, his, his healing. We would hear stories on people who were sick with no physician to go to, no medicine. Through the faithfulness of God and his provision, prayer, how he would heal them. We heard families be restored from abuse, from alcoholism, from addiction. This was the common thing we heard all, all week. And so coming back to the States, we were processing this and um, it inspired this song that we're about to sing for you now. And inspired by the healing power that is in the name of Jesus and the restoration that he brings. The song is called Healing. In the name of 
I'm going to talk about envy, and I'm struggling a little with envy after that was just phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Thank you, team. Thank you, Adam and Allie. Would you bow with me as we pray? Lord, we thank you that you are a God who heals. We thank you for the incredible power that there is in the gospel to save, to change, transform, to raise us, as Adam sung, from the dead. We are amazed not just at your power, but your love that makes us possible. And today we praise you for the love of God in Jesus Christ. And I want to pray, God, that we would align with David, with David's word in Psalm 27, that it would be true of us when David says, this one thing I ask from the Lord, would you work in our hearts that we would be people that ask this one thing from the Lord. And he talks about dwelling in the temple, and then he says to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Would that be so in our hearts, God? Would you make that true in our families that we would be people who above everything else ask this one thing from you, seek this one thing, and that is to see the beauty of Jesus. The beauty Adam and Allie have just sung about. The power, the love, the grace. Your sovereignty your goodness. Drive this into our hearts and our minds. 
And we thank you for what today represents for Wheaton Bible Church as we will gather in just a, a couple of hours to affirm Hannibal Rodriguez as our next senior pastor. We pray, God, that you would bless that vote, that you would work extraordinarily in Hannibal and Heidi's life and bless him as he moves into this role. We pray, God, that you would bless the, I pray that you would bless the future of Wheaton Bible Church, that you would do incredible things in us, starting in us by your spirit as we fix our eyes on Jesus and then through us and from us here and around the world in places like India. And we thank you now that we can look into your word and, oh God, we love your word because in your word you speak to us and you tell us about yourself. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds right now. That we would be people of the word because we are people of Jesus. Amen. Now, after Mother's Day last Sunday, uh, today we're going to resume our series on love, what we've called it, Love Unfiltered. It's really a series on 1 Corinthians 13, this legendary love chapter. And we have three reasons for doing this series. The first is to help you not trip up in your relationships. So that in your friendships, in your marriages, in your work relationships, in your other relationships, you will love others as Jesus loves you. Or you will love others because Jesus loves you. And then a second purpose is so that we as a church will become increasingly accepting and loving without compromising doctrine. After all, John tells us of Jesus, that Jesus was full of both grace and truth. That's what we want to be as a church, full of grace, full of truth. And then the third reason for this series is so that uh, we can sketch out a way forward in a culture that has become increasingly contentious and divisive. And because we live in that culture, because the culture is the air we breathe, that seeps into the church. And what happens in the church, what will happen in the church, if we don't watch it, is we will become increasingly contentious and divisive. And another reason for this is so that we will know the way forward as culture becomes, and it will become increasingly hostile towards the things that we believe as followers of Christ. And that's why Paul begins in verse 2 in 1 Corinthians 13 and says, without love you are nothing. Can you imagine spending your life and being nothing? Without love we are uh, Nothing. So let's get started this morning and let's resume in verse 4. Two weeks ago we looked at patience and kindness. Note their positive statements, their positive attributes or behaviors of love. Now beginning with the next statement, it does not envy, as you can see with the uh, three listed in the second half of this verse, Paul begins a series of seven 
statements about negative attributes, negative behaviors of love. And the first is love does not envy. Other translations put it, love is not jealous. Now from the beginning of the Bible, I'm talking Cain and Abel. Through the Bible to near the end of the Bible. The Bible warns us over and over that envy and jealousy and rivalry and resentment and anger and bitterness can poison our lives. So look at what Proverbs says. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy, what does envy do? Envy rots the bones. Now, I've been thinking about talking to you about envy, and I've realized for a lot of you, you're going to sit there and say, you know, I don't have a problem with envy. Envy's not a big deal for me. And then I look at the Bible and I see over and over the emphasis the Bible puts on the sin of envy. I mean, 1 Corinthians, uh, James chapter 3, uh, Galatians chapter 5, elsewhere in the scripture, it's a, a, a big deal. So if you're sitting there thinking, I don't have a problem with envy, then I want you to think about what I'm gonna say uh, this morning in terms of somebody else and how you can help them, okay? <laughs> oh, uh, not condemn them. And, and just maybe God will use this in your life. Now notice, the first of the negative statements is a statement about envy or, or jealousy. Why? Because it was such a huge problem in the church. In Corinth, this highly talented but highly troubled church. Now let me give you just one illustration of this and let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are worldly. He's talking to the church. Mere infants in Christ. For since there is, and here it is, jealousy and quarreling among you, uh, you are worldly. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, no, Apollos is my man. Are you not mere human beings? In other words, are you not just acting uh, like uh, the rest of the world? Now, in Corinth, what was going on, because it was so so highly talented, uh, God had anointed the church in Corinth with extraordinary spiritual gifts. Some had the gift of speaking in tongues, others interpreting tongues. Some had prophecy, some had the gift of knowledge, some had the gift of healing. Some had the the gift of uh, performing uh, miracles, and the people that didn't have those extraordinary gifts in Corinth were envious of those that did. And some of those that did, maybe say you had the gift of interpretation, were envious of those who had the gift of healing. But what Paul says specifically here in verse 4 is there were factions. Some of the believers in Corinth said, you know, Paul's my man. And I like his emphasis and I uh, like what he says and, and he is way different than Apollos. And, and so the people that aligned with Paul be, began to develop this pride and as a result they looked down on, uh, they were uh, resentful of those that aligned with Apollos. And and so there's all this envy, there's this jealousy, there's this uh, strife uh, going on. And at the heart of it was resentment. 
you know, some were against masks. Some were for them. And it became a cause for resentment. Some were progressives. Others were conservatives. And it led to resentment because envy and jealousy manifest as resentment. So when Paul says love does not envy, he's saying love does not resent. Now, I know you don't have a problem with this, but listen for others, okay? Now, before I go on to our story, this great story we're going to look at this morning, let's take this a step further and go to Galatians chapter 5. Now, what I want you to see in this passage where Paul lists the acts or the, the sins of the flesh, Paul mentions both jealousy and envy and then separates them by four words. Now, here's what's going on. Sometimes in the Bible, and this is why in 1 Corinthians 13, sometimes it's translated envy, sometimes it's translated jealousy. Those two words are used interchangeably often in the Bible as synonyms, but then sometimes, like we have here in Galatians chapter 5, they're used as if they have different meanings, and they do have different meanings. So commentators tell us when there's a difference between envy and jealousy, it goes down like this. Envy is wanting what another has. You, you want their life, you want their stuff. But jealousy is the fear, sometimes the anger um, at someone taking what you have. So you envy someone else's girlfriend, but you're jealous of someone flirting with yours. And it becomes a mess. And it was a mess in, in Corinth. But the biggest difference between when we're talking about the words envy and jealousy and they're used uh, differently, the biggest difference is uh, the Bible tells us that God is often jealous but never envious. I, I mean, think about it. There is nothing that God does not possess. <clears throat> it's impossible for him to be um, envious. But look at Exodus. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name, now get this, it's not only that God is a, 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 a jealous God, his name is jealous. Do you see that? So here, uh, jealousy is used in a positive sense. So sometimes in the Bible, jealousy is a positive thing. Sometimes it's a negative thing. But envy in the Bible is always negative. And God is jealous because he wants your attention. He wants your affection. He wants your heart. He wants your worship. And when you and I turn away and we, we get busy or we start pursuing other stuff and, and we give way to putting other things as, um, as overly important in our lives, you know what? God is jealous with the Holy jealousy because God wants what is rightfully his and that's what jealousy is in the Bible when it's used positively and you and I are gods I mean we belong to God 
So when Paul says love is not jealous, he's using it negatively. He's talking about the resentment and rivalry that was taking place in Corinth, the anger and and even the abuse. And now going forward this morning, I'm going to use envy and jealousy interchangeably as synonyms, and I'm going to talk about them in the negative sense, and that brings us to this story. It is the envy story in the Bible, and it takes us all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and it's all about Israel's first king, this talented king, King Saul, and his jealousy of this up-and-coming young man by the name of David. And it all kind of went down for Saul, beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 17, when David, a Jew, a member of the Israeli army, kills the giant Goliath. Remember the story? Goliath was a Philistine. And David takes him on courageously, believingly, while the entire Israeli army, including King Saul, was paralyzed by fear. So what I want to do is look at what happens in the aftermath, the very next chapter, after David has had this huge victory for Israel. So stand with me out of respect for God's word as we read our passage today. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I'm going to pick it up beginning in verse 6. When the men returning were returning home after David had killed Goliath, the women came out, now notice this, from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. They danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Now, earlier, and I'll talk about this a little later, earlier, Saul had disobeyed God and disobeyed God blatantly. So this spirit that God allows to go upon Saul is designed to humble Saul, to bring Saul to his knees, to get him on his face in order that he would repent. So this evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Now Saul had a spear in his hand. You need to know when the king is sitting on his throne with a spear in his hand, he's probably not having a good day. And he hurled it, see, uh, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. And now we read Saul was afraid of David. Saul was the king, but he's afraid of David. So bounce down to verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and remained his enemy the rest of his days. 
Now notice how this unfolds. Chapter 19, verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. And now one more verse, chapter 19, verse 11. Saul sent men to David's house to watch and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. And that is God's word. You may be seated. And what I want to do is I want to look at envy. What this story tells us about envy, I want to look at its progression in Saul's life and then the cure, this wonderful cure. So let's begin with envy and let's go back to verse 8. Now notice the two words in verse 8, but me. Pastor Tim Keller says, this, says that envy is thinking, but me. He, but what about me? Now, now Saul in love couldn't say, I am so thankful for David. I'm so impressed with his brilliance, his courage, his gifts, his confidence in God. I am so thankful for the way he stepped out when the rest of us, including me, couldn't. And he saved all of Israel by taking out the giant Goliath. Saul wasn't there. Saul couldn't say that in love because envy makes everything about you. It's he, but what about me? She, but what about me? Envy resents another's advantage. It's being frustrated with what another has, uh, with what you have because another has more. It's being frustrated with what you did or, or what you do because another does it uh, better. So here's the envy test. How do you respond to the success of others? Can you rejoice with those that rejoice? Or does their joy make you weep? Now envy, now look at it here again. Envy, in light of verse 8, is the inability to enjoy another's tens of thousands because of comparison. And it's the inability to be Grateful for your thousands because of resentment. Do you see that? So how do you respond when she gets the promotion and you thought you deserved it? Jerry Bridges in his excellent book, Respectable Sins, has a chapter on envy because he argues envy is one of the respectable sins in our culture uh, today. And he talks personally about a struggle he had in this area with another female author who had written just as many books as Jerry Bridges. And I think I've read probably five of his. And I know many of you have read Bridges. And he said she's written just as many books, but she was asked to speak all the time, all over the country and all over the world. And I never was asked to go speak any place, not even once. 
And that created angst in this godly man's spirit. It created resentment. And he goes on to say that, you know, uh, envy plays itself out. We tend to envy those people we most closely identify with and those who excel in the areas we value most. So if your, things is, if your thing is cars or boats or kitchens and, and a friend has one a whole lot better, then that will tend to produce envy in, in your heart. You know, if you're an athlete, you don't envy the musician. You envy the person that's a better athlete. Uh, we envy those we closely identify with and those who excel at the areas where we value the most. Now, you parents, and I'm a parent, I mean, we long for our children to thrive. Rhonda and I were in Atlanta last weekend with our son and his wife, and we were just thrilled to see how they're thriving spiritually in, in other areas, in their, in their community, uh, in um, the Buckhead area in Atlanta. And we came back to Chicago just full of joy. We want our children to thrive. That, that's a good thing. But how do you respond when some friends' children thrive more? When your daughter gets into college, but your friend's daughter gets into an elite college, does it produce envy? Now, you students, how, how, how do you respond when somebody you think is less capable than you makes a starting lineup and you don't, or gets first chair and you don't? Do you badmouth your friends? Paul says, love does not envy. But today, we experience house envy, hair envy, job and ability envy, and boy, do our three-year-olds struggle with toy envy. I mean, there are wars now, that's a psychological side of envy, and if I stopped there, I would be remiss because we need to go on. I want to show you the theological side of envy here, uh, the spiritual side of envy, and we've got to look at the last sentence in verse 8 where Saul says of David, what more can he get but the kingdom? And by kingdom, he means the throne, uh, become king. Now let me go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul, who is the king, blatantly disobeys God, as I said earlier. And God sends the prophet Samuel to tell Saul because of his blatant disobedience, his, uh, disobedience it wasn't the only time in Saul's life, uh, his disobedience of God. Because of that, Saul has lost the throne. He will no longer be king, and another will be appointed to replace him. Now look at the uh, context here, because apparently, as Saul is hearing all the women from all the towns of Israel singing about David's tens of thousands, 
all of a sudden it clicks and he realizes Saul, Samuel never told Saul who was going to be the king, but he realizes in this moment in the midst of the singing that it's David. And he refuses to accept it. So the theological side of envy is a functional denial of the sovereign reign and rule of God in your life, in your circumstances. Our jobs, friends, our, our abilities, our, our privileges that we enjoy, the positions, even our families, as I have learned so painfully, are not ours to hold on to. But they're God's to give. And to take away. So you're a salesperson and your company hires uh, this sharp young woman who just oozes the ability to sell. And a year later, she is out selling everyone in the company, including you. There will always be more people, there will always be people that are more talented than you and me. There will always be young people coming up that are smarter, that are sharper, that have more to offer. There will always be better preachers, better uh, pastors. Uh, that's Hannibal when I think about myself. <laughs> and it produces envy. I'm just kidding. So, but, but I need to say, by the way, because of that, I'm not going to vote for him. <laughs> Just kidding. I will vote for you, Hannibal. <laughs> you know, we all struggle with this, right? Uh, there's always more gifted musicians or more gifted contractors or more gifted designers or more uh, gifted parents. So I want you to hear me. If God is interested, if God, I'll say it this way, if God intended the days of your life to be easy, they would be. But he in, instead, he intends your days to be tools of refinement. Because God is after your holiness, not your personal definition of happiness. So he uses disappointment. She got it, I didn't. He uses setback to humble you, to make you more like Jesus. So jealousy isn't just unhappiness. It's not a movement toward resentment or just a movement towards anger. Fundamentally at its core, it's unbelief. It's a denial of the sovereign plan of God for your life, his good plan that the loving Father has for you. And there's a theological side and there's a psychological side. And that's envy in this chapter. Now let me go on to the progression of envy in Saul's life. It starts with self-pity. It's the, but me. Saul, um, and prior to this, began to take his focus off God, obviously, and to focus on himself, on his position, on um, his press releases, and that life became all about uh, Saul. And so when we get jilted, when things get taken away, when uh, we get denied, we begin to say, man, my boss is unfair, my spouse is unfair, this situation is unfair, God is unfair, because at the core of self-pity, 
self-pity is thinking I deserve more. The second step is bondage. Bondage here for Saul is FOMO. You know what FOMO is? It's, uh, help me, it's the fear of missing out. It's Saul. He's, bond, uh, he's in bondage to anger, uh, to self-pity, to, uh, to resentment. And, and here's what happens. You begin to see the Davids in your life as enemies. And you know you're in bondage when you start to hurl things at them. So let's go on. Saul had this spear. What does he do? Man, he hurls it to David. That's envy. It's you and me and our thoughts and our words and in our actions, hurling things at others. Step three, blasphemy. And here I'm defining blasphemy in the broader biblical sense, not just specifically the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. In chapter 18, Saul begins to want to kill Saul, makes plans to, uh, Saul begins to want to kill David privately. But when we come to chapter 19 and verse 1, he goes public and he starts telling everybody his plan, his intent is to take out David. Has it ever occurred to you that Satan became Satan? Now follow me, Satan became Satan because of envy? That envy ruined the universe? That Jesus had to become a man because of envy? And according to Mark 15, 10, Jesus was crucified because of the envy of the, the Pharisees. Envy in our sinful fallen world is a universal problem. And Saul knows that David has been chosen to become the king. He knows that his kingdom will his reign will come to an end. He knows that David is wildly popular, but it doesn't matter to Saul because Saul has to be better. He has to be seen as better, so he plans to murder David. And we don't murder people, but man, we push people to the fringes all the time. So what does Saul do? Now now hear me in this, Saul here openly opposes God. He trashes the revealed word and will of God so he could hold on to his idol of human approval that has been dogging him his adult life. David has slain his tens of thousands, was a crazy maker for Saul. And he chose, I mean, the king chose the insane pursuit of human approval over God's approval, and that gets filed as blasphemy. 
It's a functional denial of the existence, in Saul's case, the reign and the rule of God. Uh, It's the same thing as idolatry. Idolatry is saying, I can't live without X. Never mind God, but I can't live without X. The X for Saul was recognition. Maybe the X for you is money or appearance or or, or something related to, to your family. It's the student that will do anything to be liked. It's the girlfriend that will do anything to keep her boyfriend. And we deny God. And Saul, Saul, this is so tragic because Saul was Israel's first king and he started so well. He was so talented. He was unique, Samuel tells us earlier, uh, uh, among men. He was so promising, yet he goes on, he becomes one of the seven suicides in the Bible. Because left unchecked, there is always a progression with sin. And it always, it always leads to blasphemy, uh, your denial uh, of the existence of sovereignty of God in a particular moment. And it happens no matter how good you look on the outside. So now I want to go on to the good part. I want to go on to this third piece here, and that is the cure, the cure to envy. And it's right here in our story in the example of Jonathan Uh, Saul's son. Jonathan, the crown prince of Israel, the rightful heir to to the throne and the cultures of that world. But amazingly, in contrast to his father Saul, Jonathan never viewed David as a rival, never viewed David as a threat, even though it meant for Jonathan he would never be the king. Uh, So let's pick up the story. The beginning of chapter 18. After uh, David had finished uh, talking with Saul together. Now, I can't read this, so I got to go to my Bible. My eyes, you know, I'm getting too old. Now, why do you laugh? So I'm going to put my readers on, and I'm going to start all over. I'm in chapter 18 and verse 1. You can see it on the screen, and I'm sort of envious. (laughs) After David had finished uh, talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Now remember, we're doing a series on 1 Corinthians 13, and what is 1 Corinthians 13 about? Love. And he loved him as himself. Verse 3. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he, here it is again, he loved him as himself. Jonathan, and here's the acts of love for Jonathan, he takes off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Uh, This is unbelievable. This does not happen among politicians, government leaders today, hardly ever. Do you see what's going on? What Saul is to envy, Jonathan is to love. What Saul is to arrogance, Jonathan is to humility. What Saul is to insecurity, Jonathan is to personal stability and security. An extraordinary display of love. 
There is no human reason why the throne could not have been passed to Jonathan upon the failure of Saul. I mean, after all, Jonathan is every bit as uh, confident, every bit as courageous, every bit as believing, every bit as spiritual as, or at least maybe as David. Yet where Saul, the father, opposes what God is doing in David, Jonathan embraces it. So uh, look at this. Look at verse 4. When Jonathan takes off his robe, and you understand that the robe symbolizes the throne, when he takes off his robe and gives it to David, He's relinquishing the right to be the king and he's giving it to David. When he gives David his sword, his, his bow, he's declaring his submission to David as the king. Why? How do we get there? Because Jonathan accepts God's sovereign plan for his life, even if it means he will be second, even if it means personal disappointment. If God intended your days to be easy, Jonathan, they would be. But God is after something else. Now, uh, talk about love. Uh, talk about humility. Talk about personal security. Uh, talk about self-denial. Jonathan gives up the greatest opportunity in life to be the king. Maybe the one thing in life that he had dreamed about and wanted more than anything else in order to participate in God's bigger plan. Ultimately, his good plan. If God intended all your days to be easy, Jonathan, they would be but they're not. So when Paul says love does not envy, I wonder if he was thinking about Jonathan. When he was writing 1 Corinthians 13 and talking about love, I, I wonder if he was thinking about this in, incredible act of sacrificial love. Now, now this brings me to the cure. And this is where we here at Wheaton Bible Church depart from others. Because we take very seriously what Jesus says a couple times in the Gospels when he says that the Old Testament points to him. And that the way we are to read the Old Testament, this is a hermeneutical thing, is by looking to see what it tells us about Jesus. And so now to talk about the cure, I am not going to say to you that the cure is for you to suck it up and be more like Jonathan. Rather, the cure is to see that Jesus is the better Jonathan. That Jonathan's... Incredible humility, his incredible sacrifice, his incredible love points to the infinitely greater humility, sacrifice, and love of Jesus. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus take off his robe? 
Didn't Jesus temporarily relinquish his throne? I mean, didn't Jesus not only surrender his sword, but allow himself to be killed by that sword so that the moment you and I believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we share in the privileges of that throne. We become adopted into God's royal family. Uh, We find ourselves completely forgiven, totally righteous in God's sight. We have eternal life and we live now and forever in the presence of the living God. What Jonathan did for David, Jesus has done times millions for you. I want you to see that. I want you to see Jesus here in chapter 18. Because when when we get this, when it begins to melt our heart and press down deep into our categories and our, our, our values and our priorities of life, you know what happens? The deep, profound, sacrificial, humble, surrendering love of Jesus for you will make you more loving. And you will travel through life not attempting to blow out other people's candles, but giving yourself to light them. To the extent we see Jesus' love, we love. To the extent we see Jesus' patience, we are patient. To the extent we see Jesus, I see Jesus' kindness for me, I'm going to be kind with others. And I'm going to let other people go first. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, would you enable us to pray like this? I do not need to grasp for the talents and gifts of others. I do not need to covet my neighbor's spouse, house, family, ministry, or opportunities. I am not defined by the blessings of others. I am defined by the grace of God. Therefore, I will refuse to measure myself by a false standard, by a worldly standard, Oh God, work in my life that I will resist the compulsive and relentless urge to compete with everyone, especially those that are called to do the same things that I am. God, give me the grace to put to death dreams about the downfall and failure of others by producing in me a savoring of the sure knowledge that God is lavish in his grace toward me and that he has promised to graciously, freely, abundantly, infinitely, and eternally give to me and to them all things in my beloved Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Amen, church. Can we stand together and respond to what we've heard? Only he alone is worthy.
of the Son of Man and stories of the Savior Holiness with human hands and treasure for the traitor No ear had heard, no eye had seen of the Father until you until heaven came to live with me a rescue like no other so we declare today you are worthy you are worthy of your name you are
beside you. Do we believe it? Amen? So as we leave today, we live in light of this overwhelming love, the, the presence, the sacrifice and the presence of Jesus for us. He is here and he is present. I, I want it to be a realized presence that you taste it and see it. And that's the invitation of the gospel. May God bless you guys. And Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent. All God's people said, amen, amen. amen.